Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. That's the sole reason we exist, to go out and tell people the good news, how God loved them and came and died for them, and how then teach them to obey all he's commanded. And that's, that's living life for him. Usually on Palm Sunday, a pastor preaches uh, about the triumphal entry, and I'm not going to do that today, okay? We're going to keep going in our, in our book, our series through the book of Romans, but next, next week's Easter, the week after that, I got something special planned. We're going to take a detour from our current sermon series, so hold your hats for that. But we are going to continue in our series. We've been calling this How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And so if you brought your Bibles with you, you can open to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, a sermon I'm calling, Don't Go Back. So here's the question. You ready? Anybody here struggle with sin? Anyone? Yeah, half of you are willing to be honest. Yeah, the rest of you have, you're struggling with the lying issue. That's right. <laughs> but are those those things that you, or thing, things, uh, plural, that you maybe think about, and maybe as a believer you pray, like, God, would you take this desire away from me? I am so sick and tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I, I never want to do this again. Help me, Lord. Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. There is a tendency to, once you become a Christian, to when you get saved, when you are reborn, that you sometimes can look back at your old life, uh, you know, the B.C., before Christ, and kind of relish the, the good old days. Is that you? I'll be honest, there's been times in my life when I've done it. You know, think about some situation, maybe even think how you could have kicked it up a notch and made it even more sinful. Wouldn't that have been great? No. It wouldn't have been great. It wasn't great then, and it won't be uh, good or even better if you do it all over again. Here's a statement that you probably rarely hear at church, and I'm going to say it, okay? Maybe you can write this down, take notes. Here's Here's a good note. Sin is fun. Did you know that? Usually the pastor doesn't say that, but the truth is sin is fun. It's a lot of fun. If it wasn't fun, I'd be out of a job or I'd have like the easiest job in the entire world, okay? The truth is sin is fun, and that's why we continue to do it over and over and over again. So sin is extremely fun for a season, right? The question you've asked in the past, the question I've asked in the past is how can I be free from sin? That's what we're talking about today. Here's another question I want you to consider. I'm sure you've asked this question, or at least someone has asked this question to you. The question is, can you be a Christian and yet continually live in a sinful lifestyle? Is it possible for a Christian just continue on sinning and yet be a Christian? That's the question. There are times when we should look back at our old life, our BC life, our before Christ life. And there's a time we should look back And we should say, this is who I was, but by the grace of God, he saved me out of that lifestyle. So there's times when we should look back at the old days, but we should visit them with a sense of disgust of who we are and a sense of joy and thankfulness that that God saved us despite of who we were. I don't know about you, but I love to hear testimonies. 
Anybody love testimonies? I love testimonies. Yeah. There was a thing that was really popular a decade or two ago called cardboard testimonies. And that's where a guy or a gal, they'd have an old piece, just torn out cardboard, and they'd have it folded down. They'd just walk up, and they'd, they'd hold it up, and it'd say something like, I was addicted to pornography or alcohol or meth, something like that. And then they'd flip it over, and it would say something like, but I've been redeemed by the blood. That's the second time that did it to me. Scared me the first service, too. <laughs> Scared me again. Um, but they flip it over and it said, but I've been redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he changed me. I love those. But there are times sometimes when a Christian will look back at their past nearly nostalgic. And it, it really shouldn't be that way. If we've received the grace of Jesus Christ, then that should absolutely change us from the inside out to where we no longer relish the good old days. So how can, because the question is, how can someone live with one hand holding Jesus and one hand holding the world? The truth is you can't. Now, I believe in the perseverance of the saints, or somebody, sometimes this is called once saved, always saved. And that means that once you've been saved, it's a done deal. That there's going to come a day that maybe on this earth, when you close your eyes in death, and the next moment you open your eyes to glory that you're with Jesus That's what I believe, and in fact, that is the official stance of this church. But there's also, there's this this Christian talk show host. I listen to him all the time. And and he has this, I I agree with like 99% of everything he talks about, but there's one thing he talks about that I greatly disagree with, and that's his stance on the security of a believer. His view is that if a believer is eternally saved, then that'll just lead to rampant sin. That if he believes that there's nothing that an individual can do to lose their salvation, then that will drive somebody to just sin it up. Because after all, all of my sins have been paid for. And whenever I listen to this show and I find this, this host going down this trail and he's railing against the security of a believer, I find myself screaming the text for today that we're going to cover at the radio. I'm screaming Romans chapter 6 and eventually I just have to change the radio station and rage change because he can't hear me after all. But with that, let's read our text for today. Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has been set, so one who has died has been set free from sin. So this is what Paul is talking about here. Let's review. Look, read verse 1 and 2 again. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, the grace being bound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So Paul begins this section with a very simple question. The question is, what shall we say? Should we continue in sin so grace may abound? 
This brings me to my first point this morning. Point number one. Christians are to live as if they're dead to sin. Do you remember what the book of Romans is about? I've been saying this throughout this series, but the book of Romans is about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Or how God makes bad men good. Okay, Paul has already told us throughout this whole letter that a believer is saved by grace through faith. And then salvation is a gift of God. And so now we, what we're finally seeing, we're finally seeing the results of someone that has received this gift. Up until this point, Paul has been building this case that every single one of us, men and women alike, we're all sinners. We're all lost. We're all messed up. Paul said there is none righteous. No, not one. And he's, he presented this idea that the God-man, Jesus Christ, he left heaven. He came to earth and he died for our sins on this cross. And so it's by faith in that and that alone someone could be seen as righteous. Paul called this, prospect, this process justification. In case you don't remember, I said justification means just as if I'd never sinned. It doesn't mean we've never sinned, but God treats us as though we've never sinned. And now Paul is beginning to talk about what justification looks like in a believer's life. Think about this. Think about justification as being the fruit of being justified. That's what comes from being justified, this, this fruit. And then Paul asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no, no, by, by no means. I'd say, no way, Jose. Not in a million years. Probably some of us in this room, this room would say that's cap, right? Anybody? That's what he's saying. That's a, that's a lie. No way. But what Paul is doing, he's assuming this argument that's going to be made. And the argument that he's assuming is going to be made is the same argument that talk show host makes. Is that if we are eternally secure, if we're eternally saved, that will cause somebody to go crazy with their sins. Paul says, No. Paul knows that people are going to ask, well, does this justification thing, does it give me a free pass to just continue on living my old life now that I've been saved? Because after all, I've been justified, right? That's Paul's anticipating this argument. They're going to ask, is justification a get out of hell free card? Can we take this justification thing and say, awesome, I, 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 I've been freed from my sins. I've been, my sin debt has been paid for, and now I'm going to get to go to heaven. So this is the greatest deal ever. I can just go sin it up and do all the sin I want to do, and when I die, I get to go be with Jesus. Is justification a license to sin? That is the question. Well, the answer to that question, please notice the word continue in verse 1. He asked the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This, can ta- can, this carries the idea of habitual, persistent sin. Let's say it this way. Shall we habitually persist in sin that grace may abound? So Paul's asking that question. How can those who've been set free from sin still desire to be a slave to sin? How can those who's been released, they've been set free? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, get up and get out. He's saying, you're free. You don't have to stay there anymore. And yet what happens is, 
So many Christians just, they don't believe their, their sin's that bad. They're saying, you know what? You know, I could stop if I really wanted to, but I love my sin. That's the truth. Many Christians love their sin. So here's the deal. Christ brings freedom, and we reject it. We would rather continue habitually persisting in sin than to be set free. So verse 2, Paul answers the question. The question in verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? abound?" And Paul emphatically says, by no means. Again, the new pastor John translation says, not in a million years. No way. In the Greek, Paul is using an emphatic here. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? That's the question. So kind of in a sense, this is what Paul is asking. He's asking, can someone whose relationship with sin has been broken by death, can we continue in sin? Hear me out on this one, church. When you come to Christ, you're supposed to die to self. You die to your sins. You die to to who you were, but then you become alive in Christ. So how can those who are dead to sin still live in it? What Paul is doing here, he's giving a comparison. He's saying you're dead to sin, so you can't live in your sin. You see, it is impossible to be dead and alive at the same time. So we as Christians are supposed to be dead to sin, but yet we're living like we're alive to sin. We're supposed to be dead, but yet how is it that we're still living like we're alive in sin? We're walking around in sin while we're supposed to be dead to sin. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sin. So in that, the, the letter of Ephesians, Paul is writing the church in Ephesus, and he's talking to them about this, this process of salvation again. And he says, you were dead in sins. Notice the past tense, were dead in trespasses and sin. But when God makes you alive, you're no longer dead, Right? You see, but what we like to do, we like to, continue to return to our state of deadness. We like being dead, and it shouldn't be that way. You see, I would say it's incredible that God has mercy on us at all. We're all so sinful, because prior to our relationship with Christ, sin was the natural way of life. When sin said, hey, you, go over and do that sin, it was, yes, sir. Um, Yeah, there was no hesitation. We were in, it was an emphatic yes. But at the moment of salvation, that all changed. Because prior to salvation, sin was the default. Sin was the autopilot. We didn't have to think about sin. We just did it. But post-salvation, salvation is the autopilot. Salvation is the way of life. Here's the problem, though. We like the old autopilot Paul is telling us to get up and get out of the graveyard of sin. Get out of the old habitual repetitive cycle of sin to move forward in the grace and joy that is found in Jesus Christ. Because now as believers, we are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come, right? Did you know that there are churches? They'll they'll preach this this message that once you come to Christ, you're no longer going to sin. You're going to be the sinless creation. You will never sin when you come to Christ. They say that with a straight look on their face. 
just lying right through her teeth. And my response is, man, you must be pretty proud of yourself being sin- sinless, right? They go, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. Hopefully you get that later. But anyways, we will always struggle with sin. So again, in the Christian life, to some degree, we will struggle with sin. Again, show of hands, who struggles with sin? That's all of us, right? So if you don't have your hands up, you're struggling with a lying problem. Or, or maybe you don't even struggle at all. You're just going with it. Which, that's not the way it should be. We will always struggle with sin at some level, at least while we're alive, right? The Bible clearly teaches if we say we have no sin, then the truth is not in us. So the person that says they don't struggle, they're not struggling because they're not saved. We all will struggle with sin. We all, it's, it plagues each and every single one of us. So Paul is not talking here about the believer that occasionally falls into sin because everyone's going to fall into sin. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about those who intentionally, willfully choose as, to sin as an established part of their life. Drop down to verse 12 of Romans 6. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Here's the question I want to ask you. No show of hands. Keep this to yourself. Who or what controls you? Ask yourself that. Who or what controls you? Because you cannot be controlled both by sin and Jesus. You can't be controlled by both at the same time. And you're going to serve a master. You might be serving the devil and you might be serving Jesus, but you can't, you're going to serve somebody. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. So the question is, who is in control of you? Here's the bottom line. You ready? Paul, what Paul is saying here, he's saying if there has been no change in your lifestyle after you say that you came to Christ, then maybe you need to reevaluate what you say you believe. The question isn't so much can a believer lose salvation, but the question is, was that person genuinely saved to begin with? That's the question. And Jesus gave us a really simple um, situation. He told us to evaluate, to know if, if someone's saved or not. He asked you to do it to yourself. And the, the, the analogy he used was, how do you know if a tree is good? Jesus said, you will know a good tree by its fruit. Because a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit. I had heard this, you know, as a saved man, read the Bible and, and heard this about bad trees. I'd never seen a bad tree. Till one day my grandparents had sold their house they lived in forever, and they moved into a smaller house that was more manageable. And in their backyard there was this, what I thought was a pear tree. And so I'm moving boxes in and out, helping my grandparents. I had a knife, and I plucked what I thought was a pear, and I had a knife, and so I cut it open, and the fruit was black on the inside. It was the nastiest-looking fruit. Turns out it wasn't a pear tree. It was an apple tree that had a fungus growing in it. You know what that tree's good for? Nothing. Chop it down. Throw it in the fire, because it will only produce bad fruit. So the question isn't, can, is, is someone continuing to live in sin? Have they lost their salvation? But the, que- the question is, were they a Christian to begin with? You want to know if you're a Christian? Examine your fruit. Look at your fruit. Look at your branches. If you're not bearing tr- fruit, then that tells you everything you need to know. Paul is telling us, this is what he's saying to the believer. Get up. Get out of sin. 
Don't go back. Get up, get out, and start growing in the newness of life. That's what Paul is saying. But see, the problem is so many people want to put the cart before the horse. So many of the Jews during Paul's day, and the truth is so many people today, they think that, 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 that this holy living is going to translate or transform them into this new creation. That if I keep all the rules, if I, if I obey the law, if I keep all the regulations, that, then I'm going to win God's favor. And they wrongfully thought this resulted in salvation. But all throughout this letter, Paul has been explaining us just how sinful we are. And there's no way that we can earn God's favor. We will fail miserably and continually every single time we try to live like this. But the great news is that God's favor towards us, it doesn't come on a basis of what we've done for him, but it comes on a basis of what he's done for us. You see, he doesn't care that you got an F on your report card as far as righteousness goes because God has decided to take the test for you. And he's going to give you the letter grade that he got. He got like A++, plus plus, plus plus for all eternity, right? You see, it's not on a basis of what you've done. It's on a basis of what he's done. And once we understand this wonderful truth, it should revolutionize the way we want to live our lives. Because we are incapable of living a holy life on our own. But salvation produces holy living. So if you've been saved, you will bear fruit. Salvation will produce holy living. And I want you to know that there's so many people in this world that they say they're Christians and they're not. You know, people say they're Christians, but they're lying. They've been deceived. Just like today there's men and women that they're claiming to be the opposite gender than the one they're born with. They're deceived. There's, there's unbelievers that claim to be believers, and they're deceived. And then someone's going to come and say, who are you to judge? Me? I'm a nobody. But I am commanded by the judge to judge them by their fruit. So maybe the issue isn't, um, were they, were, did they lose their salvation? Maybe the issue is they just never saved to begin with. Maybe they heard a gospel, but it wasn't the whole gospel. Maybe they only accepted a part of it. If we return to the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul and his team of men have been traveling the Mediterranean Sea. He's planting the churches and sharing the gospel. And towards the end of Acts, Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, one of the most wicked men on the planet at that time. And, but if you don't know this, before that, he, he was on the road to Damascus. He met the resurrected Savior, and King Jesus told him, and this is where he's retelling the story to King Agrippa, that Jesus said that, that his goal was to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. That is to believe or to accept factually the things they're hearing and turn from darkness and turn to God in faith. That's what he's saying. So maybe there's people that have maybe had their eyes open conceptually. They go, yeah, I believe Jesus was a real man. Yeah, I I believe he he came from heaven. Yeah, I I believe he died on a cross. Well, maybe they even believe that he rose from the grave, but they haven't turned from darkness and turned to light. It's been said that no believer will be sinless until they go to be with the Lord, either by death or by rapture. There's going to come a day, either when we die or we're taken off this planet, we're going to be with Jesus, and then we'll finally be sinless. 
But the, the professing Christian who persists and disregards Christ's lordship and his standard of, of living by disobedience, they really have no claim to Jesus being their savior. You see, holiness starts where justification ends. You know what that means? That salvation is not the end of your life, but it's the beginning of your life. And if holiness does not start, then we might have right to suspect the justification never finished. Read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There the apostle John did not say someone who sins is not born of God. Because again, we're all going to sin. John says the one who practices sin, right? And practice, practice makes perfect. Now, if you don't know this, I coach football here in this town and I coach wrestling. But if I have a, an athlete that refuses to come to practice, they're not getting on the field, they're not getting on the mat. I don't care how good they are because they refuse to practice. Kind of like how I'm not a runner. But there are times I occasionally run. Maybe someone says, hey, last cookie in the kitchen. Oh, man, I'm fast then. Yeah, you guys laughed a little too hard at that one. Um, but I can run. But like there's times when I'm driving home, there's a lady in our community just running. And she's getting it, smiling on her face. You know, she's a runner. Why? Because she practices running. She loves running. So she gets proof that, that she's a runner. I don't practice running. Now, those who willfully embrace the practice of sinning proves they're a sinner. And they're giving proof that's who they are at their core because they practice it. Now, the Apostle Paul, he uses a word. He uses the word no, K-N-O-W. He uses it in verse 3, verse 6. And if you look down to verse 9, he uses that word, no. Okay? So there's something he wants us to understand. There's a very basic doctrine of Christianity is this, that Christian living, right living, it depends on Christian learning. And if Satan can keep you ignorant, he can keep you from living the Christian faith that glorifies God. But here's what I want you to know. Not all the things we need to learn as a Christian is learned in a classroom. So you can go to all the Bible studies you want and never learn anything because you don't really learn it till you've applied it. And we don't apply what we've learned in this place until we leave this place and put into action in the real world. So here's the bottom line. It's time for us to stop practicing sin and start practicing righteousness. It's time for a believer to, to start learning God's word, understand his word, and then we need to apply God's word. We need to apply it and put it into practice, put his word as part of our lives. So then what's going to happen is naturally when things happen, we respond the way Jesus would want us to respond rather than our old sinful way. So it's not enough to just get up and get out of the filth and sin. We need to go forward in the newness of life that's found in God's word. Keep reading Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two Justification isn't merely a, a legal, 
It is the most personal thing there is. Now, this passage we just read here talks a lot about baptism. Okay? What Paul is telling us, he's saying, now that we left our old ways, now that we've gotten up and we got out of the, Paul, uh, God has pulled us out of that filth, we are to go forward based on this newness of life, this new relationship with God, and a new relationship to our old life, which is sinful. That's exactly what baptism is all about, if you didn't know that. Water baptism, we do in this, this tank right here, it's an outward symbol of an inward change. It's a public declaration of this inward change. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Once you get baptized, it's not like you're never going to sin again. But baptism is a symbol of that we are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why when I baptize somebody and I stand in a tank like that or a river, I'll say, buried with Christ in baptism. And then I'm quoting Romans 6, 4, raised to walk in the newness of life. Because that's what baptism is symboling. When someone is baptized, they're lowered below the water. That's representing the death of Jesus Christ. They're saying, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is what Jesus did for me. He died. And then we raise them back up, right? Because to leave them in the water would be abuse. We don't do that. We rise them back out of the water. And that's symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus. So what we're doing when we get baptized, we're telling everybody with an earshot, everyone that can see us, we're saying, this is what Jesus did for me. He died and he rose again. But we're also saying, I'm dying to my old self. I'm not going to be that guy, that gal anymore. I'm going to be living for Jesus. And so justification isn't just merely a legal matter between us and God. So many people say that, oh, it's just between me and God. No, this is a personal thing. It's the most personal thing there is. So up until this point in the book of Romans, Paul is explaining justification as if it's just a legal matter. Paul's been using these courtroom illustrations all the way up until this point. So it would be very easy for a religious person to say, okay, justification is just a legal matter. It's just a business matter. Just between me and God. And so so once I sign the contract, once I ink the deal, I sign the bottom line, I put my John Hancock on that piece of document, I can just go back to my old sinful lifestyle. Because it's done, right? My sin has been paid. I can live however I choose. But what Paul is saying here, he's saying justification is not just a legal matter. It's a matter of relationship. You see, you can't avoid sin by just merely imitating Jesus. You can't just imitate Jesus and then then live a sinful life. It's not going to work. It doesn't work like that any more than if you went on top of this church and you jumped off imitating Superman. No, you're just going to fall. That's what's going to happen. Imitation is not found, the power is not found in imitation. There is no power in repeating a phrase. There is no power in just, just reciting a prayer over and over and over. You see, it is found where Christ comes into your life and he gives you the power over sin. And again, that's exactly what baptism is saying. Baptism is saying, I'm in Christ. He's in me. I give him my life. Baptism is saying, whatever happened to Jesus, let it happen to me. It's saying, when he died, the old me died. When he rose, the new me rose. That's what baptism is saying. When he conquered sin, he conquered sin in my life. Like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, I am now seated in the heavenlies. 
That's what Paul said. It's all about becoming more like Jesus. And it's because of this living union that we have with Jesus, a new relationship with Jesus. Then what happens is I have a new relationship with sin. My old relationship with sin is not the way it used to be. And my new relationship with sin is not like my old relationship with sin where I embrace it and relish it and cherish it. You know what I should do? I should hate the sin that's in me. Paul is saying that we made a break from the past. We were dead and we were buried. That's our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's also saying that we, that since he's been raised, we are raised. We were dead, but now we are alive. And so if I've accepted that fact to be true, I need to begin to appropriate this in, our, in my life. So let's start identifying ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ rather than our old sinful way. And it's then and only then can we make a break from our past. In the coming verses, Paul is going to say, he's going to say, so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider that Paul says there, it means count as if it's true. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, count as if it's true and stop feeling like you're destined to continually stay under the power of sin. Stop living your life, believer, as if you have to say, well, this is who I am and I have no power and I'm just going to keep, keep continuing down this sin. I can't help myself. This is just who I am. No. God has opened the prison door. We are to walk out the door. I want you to know there's certain things that only God can do. Can we all agree on that? Only certain things God can do. But then we have to agree there's only certain things I can do. Only God can save me from my sins. Only God can forgive me. But on the other hand, only I can repent. Only I can appropriate what Christ has done for me. Only I can choose to live in his righteousness. You see, only I can choose to live as if Christ is in me now that he's in me. God did not force you to accept his righteousness before salvation, and God will not force you to live in his righteousness after salvation. If you want to stop doing the same stupid things that you hate so much, I said the word stupid. I've called my sin stupid myself. For a believer, it's a simple choice. I say it like this. For me, having abs is a choice, right? Okay? Problem is, I love carbs. For me, I can have abs or I can have carbs, but I can't have both. It's a simple choice. If I want the abs, stop eating the donuts. Watch me this week. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to eat them. Look at verse 4. Paul says, we too might walk in the newness of life. We should underline that. As Christians, maybe that's one we, we should go back and remember all the, that we too might walk in the newness of life. Now look, at, I want to show you another verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Bible is chock full of these examples that tell us what our new life should look like, this new spiritual life, what it means to walk in the newness of life. This is what I want you to know. There are possessions that have been given to you by God. At the moment of salvation, God the Father gives us these gifts. And we, this is what we need to do. We either choose to possess them or we choose to reject them. Because God promised us a new heart. Look in Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will 
put them in you. God gave us a new song in our mouth. Look in Psalms 40, verse 3. says, he put a new song in my mouth. That's pretty easy to understand. God promised us a new self. Look in Ephesians 4, verse 22. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit by your minds, and to put on the new self. Created in, in, excuse me, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what you know. It's all about possessing your possessions. Because God has given them to you at the moment of salvation. God offered them to you, but you have to accept them. There's times in my life, my wife's life, especially when our kids were younger, we'd go somewhere and I'd look down at their feet and they got the nastiest, disgusting shoes on like holes in them, treads worn off. And I ask them, what are you doing wearing those old shoes? And they'll say, well, these are the only ones that fit. Well, what do I do? I'm a dad that loves my kids. Well, that day we're buying new shoes and I'm gonna get you some new shoes. The next day the shoes show up. Here, put the shoes on. And then what do we do? We leave, we go out somewhere. I look down at their feet and they have on the same old disgusting shoes. And I ask, hey, where are your new shoes? You know what they say? I forgot. No, you didn't. You just got lazy. You didn't put on your new shoes. Go put on your new shoes. Or they put their, take their new shoes and play out in the mud. Don't do that either. Those are bad ideas. We should put on the new shoes and wear them. Okay? See, it's important to understand that even though God's given this to us, this righteousness, this new mouth, this new heart, this new song, the point is a believer is no longer controlled by their old sinful lifestyle. The tyranny and the penalty of sin has been done away in a Christian's life. Sin has been broken. But here's what you need to know. The potential for sin, the potential for sin to express itself has not been fully removed. Our human weakness still makes us capable of getting into Satan's temptation that we give into our flesh, that we give into the world. So we have an ability to sin, even though now we have the power to resist Look in verse 6 of Romans chapter 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who died has been set free from sin. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three. Christians no longer have to sin. We've been set free. Let me just tell a little bit of the story of my, my testimony. Romans chapter 7 is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And when, I, when we get to that one in, in this study, I'll, I'll tell that story. In case you're wondering, Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 is my favorite verse. That's the, the verse that was preached that changed my eternal destiny. But Romans 7 is my favorite chapter. But before I came to know Christ as my Savior... I thought, wrongfully, that Christians don't sin. I really thought that was true. I thought once I finally come down this aisle and give my life to Jesus, Jesus is going to remove this, this, uh, this desire to sin. But the truth is, I love my sin. It's so fun. I love doing it. I love going places I shouldn't go, and I love doing things I shouldn't do. I knew that's wrong, but I love to do it. And so that kept me from coming to Christ for the longest time. Till one day it was in a church service just like this where I couldn't take it anymore. I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I walked an aisle. There's a pastor there. I'm going to say a share his name, John Shirley. Receive me. 
These guys here know him. And he, I, I gave my life to Christ. And he said, hey, when do you want to get baptized? I said, tonight. I'm coming back tonight service. I'm out waiting. Got baptized that, that night. I tell that story because John's now with the Lord. That was October 19, 2003. And I remember waking up October 20th, 2003, lifting my head off the pillow and still saying, I still want to sin. I still want to do all that stuff. And then I started to question my salvation. Am I, am I not saved? Maybe, maybe John didn't push me down far enough. And this is all the stuff I'm working on. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I wasn't sincere enough. It's kind of a longer story, but I want to tell it. Um, it was like days or a week later that a buddy of mine came to me. He was dating this girl. They were having an inappropriate relationship. She got pregnant, and she's going to go have an abortion. And he came to me and said, what do I do? I'm like, I don't know. So I took him to my friend John. And Pastor John told me, hey, sit in this chair. There was a chair right next to Kathy Davis's desk. She's now with Jesus. I sat in that chair, and it was in that chair as a redeemed man. I first time I ever opened this Bible, and I started to read. And for some reason, I began in the book of Romans. And I wrote Romans 1 and 2 and 3. And I'm, I'm not getting it. I don't think I got to Romans 6 yet. But it was sometime later I got to Romans 6. And I got to this part that said that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And I thought to myself, well, I'm still sinning. That must be I'm not saved. No. I didn't get what Paul was saying. Paul was saying that you used to be a slave. But now you're free. Paul's saying, don't go back. Don't go back. Sin in your life has been put out of business, which means you can try to go back if you want to, but you know it's not going to be as much fun. It's not going to give you that same thrill. It's not going to give you the same fulfillment. It's not going to give you the same joy. He's saying, don't go back. Sin is out of business in your life, so don't go back. We need to make a conscious decision each and every day, moment by moment. I'm not going back. I'm going to live for Jesus because sin doesn't call the shots anymore. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm going to say, don't go back. But you know what happens? I know this is how it works. When you're all alone and you're in your bed trying to go to sleep as a believer, sin comes back and it whispers in your ear and says, hey, just one more time. Just one more time. Everybody, I'm sure you know that. Sin comes back and says, hey, this time is going to be different. This time, I'm going to make you feel better. Sin is like a drug. It promises everything, and it delivers on nothing. Sin says, hey, no one has to know. It's just between you and me. Sin says, hey, the people at church, they don't have to know. They're not going to understand anyways. And then we give in to sin, and we do it one more time. And then sin's going to isolate you. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to pull you aside. And sin, sin's going to start throwing that in your, path, in, in your face, saying, how could you do it again? Sin's going to say, you're such a hypocrite. You say you're a follower of Christ, but look, you did it again. Being in a relationship with sin is really like being in an abusive relationship. Because sin's going to get in your face and say, you're a liar, you're a thief, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer. God can't forgive you. God doesn't want you. Sin's going to say, God forgave you all those other times, but he doesn't love you anymore. He's done with you. But what a born-again believer needs to do, they need to realize that the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to cover all sins. 
The slave price has been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. What he did for me, it it paid for all my sins. And now I'm free to worship him and go and sin no more. I need to realize that I have a new master. My new master is named Jesus. My old master, sin, he doesn't call the shots anymore. I need to walk off the slave plantation because I don't work there anymore. Because sin was defeated by what Jesus did on the cross. The victory has been won. The game is over. It's kind of like a basketball game. You know, there's a team that's up by 40 points with 30 seconds left to go. But one team is still playing like there's a chance in heck they might win. That's what the devil does. It's over. He knows it's over, but he's trying to convince you it's not over when it's over. I grew up in California and when I was a little bitty guy, I remember I'm like eight years old. My dad would take me down to L.A. We'd go to the Great Western Forum and go watch the Lakers. Back when the Lakers were good, okay, they were worth watching. Today, eh, let's not watch them, but this is the Showtime Lakers. I mean, remember the Showtime Lakers? They had a coach named Pat Riley. This is Kareem and Magic and James Worthy and Byron Scott and Michael Cooper. Longest socks in the history of the NBA. Love that team. But they also had an announcer, an answer by the name of Chick Hearns. And Chick had a million and one saying he would pull out at the drop of a hat. But he had one saying, and he always saved the saying for the end of the game when, the, when it's a done deal and the Lakers are going to win. Chick would say this. He'd say, the game is in the refrigerator. The door's closed. The light's out. The eggs are cooling. The butter's getting hard, and the jello's jiggling. That's our salvation. It's a done deal. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the game is in the refrigerator, the door's closed, the light's out, the eggs are cooling, the butter's getting hard, and the jello's jiggling. You know what we should do? We should go out and live like it. Sin doesn't work here anymore. Got a new boss. His name's Jesus. But if you're not a believer, if you've never crawled out to him, There must come this moment in your life where you recognize your sinfulness and your sin separates you from God. But yet Jesus loves you so much he came and he paid the ultimate price, not for what he did, but for what you've done. The Bible has a beautiful promise. says whoever calls the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Not that they might be saved. We hope, no, they will be saved. It's a promise of God. It's a beautiful promise. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I'd beg you to do that now. Say, dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm tore up, but yet you love me and you came and you paid for what I have done. I give you my life. Thank you for saving me. I say this name of Jesus Christ, amen.